The place I used to draw my pay Slammed the door on me today And told me just to stay away And don't come back again I went back home to break the news My woman saw that I had the blues But she said the babies need new shoes I'm a worried man This is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media because in a few minutes we will be discussing the gentrification of consciousness, as today's guest calls it. So what is the gentrification of consciousness? Well, for those of you who live in a city, as we do here in Chicago, we know what gentrification is. It's when a relatively poor area in the city is suddenly invaded by people who are better off than us, displacing the area's current inhabitants. So how can consciousness be gentrified? You may have heard of the recent psychedelic breakthroughs in psychotherapy and treatment for things like severe depression, PTSD, alcoholism, and addiction, and other difficult-to-deal-with mental and physical issues. Yes, psychedelics, as in the use of psilocybin, as in mushrooms, or as they were referred to in the 60s, magic mushrooms. Maybe you've heard the commercials for ketamine treatments that can cost anywhere from $400 to $2,000 per session at for-profit clinics. Silicon Valley and its venture capitalists are already preparing for a future when psychedelics, including LSD, might be legal again, as it was prior to the 60s psychedelic revolution. But when something gets legalized and not merely decriminalized, as has happened with recreational marijuana, those things get commercialized, which seems to be happening with psychedelics as pharmaceutical companies rush to commodify what is an important part of indigenous sacred rituals. Pharmaceutical giant Compass Pathways is already patenting a variant of the psilocybin mushroom. While legalization of psychedelics may sound great, what legalizing does is continue the criminalization of the more natural variant that is still very much illegal. This means, yet again, the poor and people of color, especially the indigenous, will still not have access to the healing power of psychedelics. In a few, we will be discussing the issue with Journalist Roberto Lovato, who wrote the Alta article, The Gentrification of Consciousness, San Francisco's Mission District, has become synonymous with well-paid tech workers displacing non-white long-time residents. It's now the setting for a new battle, as the coming psychedelic industrial complex threatens to strip hallucinogenic drugs of their historical and ritual significance. You can find Roberto's writing at altaonline.com. That's A-L-T-A online.com. Roberto is the author of Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas, a groundbreaking memoir the New York Times picked as an editor's choice and hailed as a kaleidoscopic montage that it is at once a family saga, a coming-of-age story, and a meditation on the vicissitudes of history, community, and most of all for Roberto, identity. Newsweek listed Roberto's memoir as a must-read 2020 book, and the LA Times listed it as one of the 20 best books of 2020. Roberto is also an educator and writer based at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. As a co-founder of hashtag Dignidad Literaria, 
He helped build a movement advocating for equity and literary justice for the more than 60 million Latinx persons left off of bookshelves in the United States and out of the national dialogue. He is a recipient of a reporting grant from the Pulitzer Center. Roberto has reported on numerous issues, violence, terrorism, the drug war, and the refugee crisis from Mexico, Venezuela, El Salvador, Dominican Republic, Haiti, France, and the United States, among other countries. He's a lifelong resident of San Francisco's Mission and Outer Mission neighborhoods. And you can follow Roberto on Twitter at Rob Vato. That's Rob V-A-T-O. Find out more about Roberto at his website, robertolovato.com. Thanks to listener Dan B., who wrote to us last week saying, I have an interview suggestion. Roberto Lovato has a new article in California's Alta Journal about the so-called psychedelic renaissance, the coming big business of legalized psychedelics like psilocybin, the current decriminalization of these substances for therapeutic treatment for PTSD, and how such treatments are often out of reach for or denied to people of color. So thanks, Dan. And listeners, if you have any guest or topic suggestions, send them to us at chuck at thisishell.com. And if we have your guest or topic suggestion on the show, we'll thank you on air, just like we are doing right now with Dan. Again, thanks, Dan. I'm your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gap Tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vupper with Alexander Jerry playing a cameo role today, only as an observer. observer. Sebastian, what's new by you? Oh, you know, we're just um, still battling with bureaucracies, but this time with the bureaucracy of the American immigration system, (laughs) because uh, I'm applying for a green card, and that application process is, um, well, not easy and also not cheap. Are you sharing your anxiety over this with Alex, who also went through the same process recently on our show? Why is it that all of our producers are non-citizens of the United States? Uh, yeah, we have commiserated about this a little. <laughs> I bet, I bet. Uh, last night, I got away from the screen for the evening for the first time in I really don't know how long. Instead, and I'm going to be doing my best to continue doing this throughout the rest of the week, instead I sat down and enjoyed one of the many books I got as gifts over the holidays. The book that I enjoyed last night was Weiner Werkstatt, 1903-1932, on the on Austria's Modern Decorative Arts Group, a group whose art was very much influenced by Charles Rennie Mackintosh, the architect, designer, and painter from the Glasgow School, who often collaborated with his wife, Margaret MacDonald Mackintosh. And speaking of psychedelic, the Mackintosh's work, as well as the Weiner Werkstatt work, it really blows my mind. But more importantly than my adoration of the de- for the designs of the Viner Verkstadt, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what have you been putting off? What have you been putting off? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask. The coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. The trucker's cap, which comes in a couple of different colors. The winter beanie or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported this is hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff Tangles 
with all pervasive networks. Thanks to those of you who have recently gone to thisishell.com and clicked on support and picked up some This Is Hell stuff. Thanks to Mahala G of Richmond, Virginia, who picked up a This Is Hell trucker cap, which comes in, again, two colors, both white and black. And thanks to Neil C. of Roslyn, New York, who got a This Is Hell t-shirt. Thanks, Mahala and Neil. Sebastian will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our discussion with Roberto on the gentrification of consciousness. You can email us your thoughts on the show, your suggestions for guests and topics, and whatever you want us to share with the listening audience by emailing us again at chuckofthisishell.com, messaging us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or tweeting at us at this is Hell Radio. We got an email from Pedro who writes, Hello, Chuck, and the rest of the members of the This Is Hell family. I'm from Spain, and I've been following your show for five or six months via SoundCloud. I just wanted to tell you that I'm completely in love with the show. The quality of the interviews is absolutely matchless, and the atmosphere you convey makes me feel at home when I listen to you. Each one of your guests brings forward great insights and thought-provoking arguments. They're incredibly good. And as for the interviewer, while the best indicator of your excellent work is that you lose count of the times those fantastic guests say things like, that's a very good question, Chuck, or I really thank you for this question, Chuck. All at the time I find this... At the time I found the show, I was looking for something to help me keep in contact with the English language, but turns out that I've found probably the best interview show I've ever listened to in a place where I learn a lot, find some hope, and I feel less lonely in this world that often looks like hell. For all that, thanks and keep working away. Keep working. I wanted to humbly suggest some potential guests for your program if you want to check them out. They're amazing minds, although they are Spanish authors that don't publish too much in English, and I don't know if you can handle and if they can handle an English interview. If not, at least you can check their work out if you feel curious about it. And then uh, Pedro goes on to suggest Cesar Rendueles, who is a Spanish sociologist and philosopher. He's published books criticizing what he calls digital utopia and techno fetishism, basically the belief that the internet is good for democracy, uh, progressive social change, and connecting with others. And his last book is about the fallacy around the liberal idea of equal opportunities in the school. It's titled Sociophobia, Political Change in the Digital Utopia. I'd also like to suggest Carlos Taibo, Spanish political scientist and anarchist activist. He talks and writes about how capitalism and modern states are driving us to present and to present and future scenarios of uh, collapse, and he advocates for degrowth, direct action, and self-governance. It's impossible to encapsulate here his wide-ranging and amazing work. He has a book titled Rethinking Anarchy, Direct Action, Autonomy, Self-Management, and finally, I'd like to suggest Antonio Turiel, Spanish physicist and mathematician that studies the sea and the weather. He's currently become very famous here talking about the current energy crisis that he relates to the peak and subsequent decline in the production of fossil fuels and how that can provoke collapse, the problems and limits of the green transition, the depletion of key resources, and the consequent need for degrowth. Pedro then provides a link to Antonio's writing, which can be found at resilience.org that's all I hope you're safe and healthy thanks Pedro no thank you Pedro your guest suggestions are truly appreciated and we will definitely be sending requests to your suggested guests to see if they can do interviews in English we'll have more of your feedback following our conversation with Roberto on the gentrification of consciousness we'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what have you been putting off what have you been putting off and I have some final thoughts on our first guest this week sociologist Amy Cooter and her 
Scientific American article, Citizen Militias in the U.S. are Moving Toward More Violent Extremism. Something didn't come up in that conversation, and I wish it had, and I'll be discussing that a little bit after our conversation with Roberto. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. And sometimes when you stare into that abyss, it's almost as if the abyss is staring back at us, filling us with the depression and dread that comes with modern life, where we can far too often feel disposable. Luckily, there have been breakthroughs in the area of psychotherapy and substances that have been illegal for far too long are now being understood as having very positive psychotherapeutic effects on maladies like PTSD, which so many of us are suffering from today. Unfortunately, those therapeutics, including psilocybin mushrooms and LSD, once legalized, become commercialized, and their for-profit substitutes can be far too expensive for those who need them while erasing their indigenous history of healing. Here to guide us through what may very well be a brave new world for psychedelics, journalist Roberto Lovato wrote the Alta Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness. Welcome to This Is Hell, Roberto. Excited to be with you, Chip. And thanks to Dan B. again for suggesting Roberto as a guest. You can follow Roberto on Twitter at Rob Vado, and you can find out more about Roberto at his website, robertolovato.com. So you start by right, by mentioning uh, Lucia Abragon Matzer, who remembers crying every day and calling her mom and telling her the stories she was hearing. She was in her mid-20s, a recent college graduate, working with renters in crisis and unhoused people living on the streets, victims of gentrification in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. The stories they told moved her deeply, sometimes too deeply. You then quote her recalling, I felt helpless and powerless to help people like the 70-year-old woman who reminded me of my abuelita in Guatemala. I got so depressed, I started asking myself, what's the value of my work? If there is no way I can change things, is there no way I can change things? I started questioning whether I wanted to live in search of healing she joined some of her friends in San Francisco for a psychedelic journey. So to you, Roberto, what explains why any person in Obregon Matzer's situation would seek out something that is not legal, that is illegal, that is not re- regulated in any way, instead of seeking a more conventional and legal way to address her depression? What explains that turn towards psychedelics rather than going to see a psychotherapist who will just uh, you know, do the regular psychotherapy that is more conventional. Well, that's going to be a longer interview than we have time for, Chuck. I'm sorry, but uh, big question <laughs> you're asking me. But uh, no, no. Uh, I mean, I think the reason behind why Lucia and millions of others turn to illegal substances has a deep history. And I found no better place to tell that history from than my home neighborhood of San Francisco's Mission District, one of the most magical places on earth in the 60s and 70s and before. Some people would think it's, people who are more greedily inclined think it's a magical place now, but that's part of the problem, right? Is the, you know, the the, the beauty that we had here in the mission as far as all these different streams of consciousness, whether it's black power with the Black Panthers in Dolores Park, Presida Park in Oakland, Huey Newton, Angela Davis, San Quentin, this, you know, on and on, or Brown Power, Cesar Chavez, farm workers, and, you know, the Brown Berets, and uh, eventually Central American revolutionary groups that I joined, 
uh, and women's power was coming to the fore in San Francisco, as was gay power, where, where San Francisco was arguably the center of it. And, and one of those major streams of consciousness was the stream of hippie, psychedelic consciousness that has a deep history beyond white people, right? Because if you look at the medicines, they began being taken here in this hemisphere by the indigenous peoples in places like Mexico, the Olmec, Aztec, Maya, uh, Mazatec, on and on. They're just all the way to Peru. People were experimenting with alternative forms of consciousness that for millennia have been, you know, had nothing to do with legality. The, 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 the illegalization of psychedelics only comes with people like Junipero Serra, the friar that quote unquote helped found San Francisco by putting Mission Dolores Church here and having, you know, Ohlone and other indigenous slave workers who were used themselves use psychedelics, build the chapels. And so when Junipero Serra comes to San Francisco and throughout Mexico, where he was, he was a representative of the Inquisition, which is the first de facto drug war in the Americas. And so, you know, the, the reason that, so I draw a line that runs from the indigenous practices of the, that became underground practices with Junipero Serra to Lucia's practices today. And the practices of many of us throughout San Francisco, throughout Cali Northern California, throughout the Southwest and throughout the country and the world have you know been using these things long before, say Michael Poling came to the picture about what, seven, 10 years ago, what, prior to which he had no experience with it. So I, I wanted to write from the perspective of somebody that had a about 40 years into this and, and, it, and just happened to be in, the, in a magical neighborhood where my brother went to school with Carlos Santana. And Santana's dad, his mariachi played at my graduation from, from Berkeley. So um, Lucia comes to it because uh, to Ill illegal use because of history, because it, you know, it's part of a tradition and because people have no choice to access these powerful medicines that really do have potential to deal with, as you said, depression, alcoholism, anxiety, end of life issues. And something I have some experience with trauma, specifically war trauma because of the revolutionary uh, organization I joined in the 19, late 80s and early 90s in El Salvador, the FMLN. So um, I, I wrote this because it's breaking my heart to see that people that could really use these medicines aren't getting access to them because only 10% of people over the last 25 years who've been a part of any experiments or legal efforts to use the medicines have been non-white. You, you started by saying the mission has uh, is a magical place, but has it gone from, because I think this speaks to gentrification in San Francisco, has the mission gone from being a magical place to being branded as a magical place? And how does that change what the mission is? I think that depends. Do you believe Airbnb or do you believe people like me, right? <laughs> right. Airbnb is telling us it's a magical place, that it's edgy and it's... Um, you know, kind of uh, rough and this really exoticized view of uh, as if we are like, you know, taking the colonial gaze down south to South America or something. Uh, but no, they, they, they're looking at the mission that way and, and, and a mission that because of big finance and big uh, pharma, big biotech, big tech have uh, turned San Francisco into the center of the Silicon Revolution that we've all everybody in the world has experienced. And you know, I haven't been a former revolutionary. I, I don't use the term lightly. They, 
technology really has altered our modes of production in some ways and, and our, 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 our ways of interacting, our sexuality, our many things. And so, um, and it's come at a very fast pace and you can see it clearly in places like the mission where friends that I grew up with, where like my friend Lalo, who I first took mescaline with in a, in a lowrider on Mission Street, uh, you know, his family had to face being pushed out by their landlords because the landlord could get more money in the 1980s from these these techies that were kind of up and coming. I mean, people, I laugh, at, not not in a, in a down-looking way, but I laugh when I hear people say like, man, I remember when things weren't so gentrified in the 2000s. I'm like, holy shit, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and it was already being gentrified as early as 1973 with the BART station. And so I, you know, I write the story from a place like La Boheme Cafe, which is a historic place where there was a lot of revolutionary activity by Chileans, Nicaraguans, Salvadoran revolutionaries. Uh, and there was also hippies like uh, Diamond Dave, who showed um, a guy named Zimmerman the way of uh, folk music, uh, Bob Dylan. You know, these are people that would come to La Boheme and reflect the, the great and magical culture that the BART station right across the street from La Boheme began kind of displacing the people, the poor, the artists, the creators, the, um, the political, the leftists, the activists, and, and have replaced them with, uh, you know, 10 people apartments that I, my friends grew up in or that I grew up in, 10 people or more in, a, in an apartment are now held by one person, one single techie, or they're even owned by them. In fact, Mark Zuckerberg lives not too far outside of the mission, which could even be defined as the former mission. So how, uh, you, you mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to make sure that we touched on this. How is the Inquisition the first drug war? Well, um, you know, indigenous peoples didn't need the Europeans to come and do anything for them. Right? They had their own way of life for millennia. It seemed to have worked for them for millennia. And then uh, the Spanish Inquisition, part of the Renaissance, right? Right, this was during the Renaissance era, quote unquote. And you know, the Spanish Inquisition was pursuing uh, demonic forces, whether it was women that were persecuted, whether it was uh, uh, queer people or indigenous people for different, indigenous people were condemned for demonic beliefs and for demonic practices. Among the demonic practices here in San Francisco that were condemned and across the hemisphere was the use of uh, different plants uh, that 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 are psychoactive, and there's a whole bunch. It's not just the ones we know, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that, uh, again, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Ohlone here, and and, and uh, Zapotec, and Olmec, and other peoples have used for millennia. Suddenly, when the Inquisition comes in here with Junipero Serra, whose castle was just toppled last year in Golden Gate Park, uh, suddenly these substances that have been legal for millennia become quote-unquote illegal, right? It's kind of like the same way that they border off humanity from, from one another. Suddenly, peoples that have had relationships across landscapes suddenly find themselves indigenous people who are cut off from their, their, their brothers, sisters, cousins to the south because of this artificial thing called a border. So the laws are these artificial borders put around consciousness. 
And I think gentrification is kind of the new border in the city. If you look at maps of San Francisco where poor people can live and can't live, that space is being demarcated and delimited further and further with each passing day, with each split of the silicon chip. And so the speed of gentrification has accelerated. And I, I wrote the piece as a way to signal, okay, what they're doing in the material world is coming to consciousness, is to coming to, the, to our right to, to explore our altered states, you know, to our access to medicines. We're, we may be entering a brave new world where the people that are in the biotech firms, pharmaceutical firms, computer companies, Twitter, Facebook, and whose employment statistics don't include black and Latinos, for example, are gonna be the people who primarily benefit from the quote unquote psychedelic renaissance that's being touted. I don't use the term because again, the, the renaissance was the de facto beginning of the first drug war in the Americas. You uh, also, uh, you write how yet as beneficial as Obregon Matzer and her friends in formal community-based psychedelic use is, is threatened by the above-board mainstreaming of their medicina by pharmaceutical, medical, and psychological interests. What for centuries, as you were pointing out, has been a largely taboo or prohibited experience is on the verge of becoming fully legal in majority-minority California and other states. So I've mentioned this on the show in the past, but I want to get your opinion. What's wrong with legalizing drugs that the possession of currently can land you in jail? What could possibly wrong with uh, what could possibly be wrong with legalizing things like psilocybin or LSD? It's what's wrong with uh, doing away with the rent control, right? <laughs> that didn't really that didn't really work out for most of us, right? When they started dismantling these historic laws that limited. Uh, the ability of landlords to displace, physically displace um, uh, people from their homes and their, pla their places of origin, like my family in the mission. So in the same way, I think, some, in, a, in a parallel way, I think in the, in the realm of consciousness, as we've seen with marijuana laws, you the, on the surface, they seem logical and make sense, but in the implementation and in the practice, they kind of continue the patterns of policing, uh, illegalizing some and jailing some and benefiting and profiting others. Like I interviewed a guy for my story. It was heartbreaking for me who had just done 25 years in uh, one of the prisons along Highway 99 here in California. You know, and I, I met him at the, uh, the world's only LSD museum here in the mission. It's a great place. Um, and, uh, you know, he was telling me about the story of what he had had lived through and he was basically dealing things that are about to become legal now so imagine what he feels like after coming fresh out of you know out of the out of, out of prison to see that things are getting legal for which he had to give up the majority of his life because the guy was about in his 40s i think or or 50s i mean or at least half of his life let's say and so uh you know tim tyler was his name and you know, imagine how Tim felt uh, and feels. I mean, he must feel, wow, I'm glad others aren't gonna face what I face, but damn, man, I had to go to prison because uh, I was trying to do what these pharmaceuticals, these big companies are now gonna make profit out of and leave me out of. So the people that were at the very front of the true psychedelic revolution that is millennia old, 
the indigenous peoples, the Latinx peoples, the hippies even, most of us are going to be left out of the profits and possibly the benefits of these, of psilocybin, of peyote, of mescaline, and other medicines that have proven to be able to, to do real damage in the fight against intractable things like end of life, depression, alcoholism, other things that people have been doing other drugs and other therapies to no effect with. And you write that the growing and largely white business of blowing minds adds to the economic distress of poor non-white communities while denying them access to the powerful mind-altering substances that might help them. So, Roberto, why does white privilege come with legalizing things like marijuana and mushrooms? And, and to you, what does that reveal about the law? Well, again, this is where we have to have a longer interview, man. I mean, uh, I think there's a guy named W.E.B. Du Bois that might have said it best of, among many about the color line. The color line is not just San Francisco or California. The color line is global. I mean, for many people that study gentrification, for example, the canaries in the minefield of gentrification are often black people. Here in San Francisco, we surely saw that. San Francisco is on its well on its way to become a town that's completely devoid of black people except for small pockets. Los Angeles has seen a similar decrease in the black population as has California as a whole, as the economic shifts in the state have not seen fit to accommodate blackness in the economy. So, um, you know, white supremacy, white privilege, color, pretty much every aspect of our lives of W.E. Du Bois, Angela Davis, and countless others have, have shown us. And so why would psychedelics be any different? I mean, even, I mean, I, I have friends who are hippies. I had neighbors who were hippies in the, in the sixties and seventies, you know, like this guy named Pete, who was our right next door to us. We could hear what was happening on the other side of our apartment walls, him and his family. And um, Pete, Pete and his wife, Liza, um, you know, they, they, they were hippies and they were really cool. They treated us great, but the hippie movement wasn't exactly uh, a, a black thing or a brown thing. You had to have these other folks like Sly Stone who would come to San Francisco and to the mission to play music as would this local kid who came from, from Jalisco, Mexico to play music, Carlos Santana, who played with, who went to school with my brother at Mission High School where I also studied like two decades later. And uh, so, so, so that, you know, there was a, there's a, there's a, my story is as much about the psychedelic underground and the beauty and the power that those of us in our respective undergrounds built, like, you know, everybody loves, and I love, uh, you know, Summer of Soul, but, you know, there's a psychedelic element there. If you look at the way, for example, that Bay Area native um, and psychedelics user, Sly Stone, fundamentally altered the Motown sound the Motown look, the Motown dress. I mean, and he did it in along with a guy named Jimi Hendrix. You know, uh, uh, he brought all those stiff, you know, suit wearing, kind of uh, shiny shoe wearing Motown, uh, beautiful music musicians there. He brought them into the psychedelic era when suddenly little Stevie Wonder's wearing kind of psychedelic clothing in Summer of Soul, if you look at it. So, um, you know, we're, they're, they're, we've had to create our, our, we've always had to create our own underground and we still have it. Most use right now is in the underground. And I write the, I wrote the piece because I wanted to draw attention to the need to protect the underground because 
we are not going to get psychedelic democracy if things continue along the path of profit, profit, profit that they're on right now. And you point out that the gentrification of consciousness often involves stripping the journeys to altered states of all their historical, cultural, and religious significance and commodifying them in the middle of mass consumption. So what happens to tripping when it is commodified through mass consumption? How does that alter your altered state? You know, I, I, I'd be a... I'd be a PhD or a, a hippie, a, a brown hippie too, you know, but uh, if I could answer that, but I, I would say that there's, you know, I agree with the indigenous people that didn't use the terminology, but very well knew what they were doing as far as what Timothy Leary coined the set and the setting, right? The, 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 the setting being where you are and uh, who you're with, if you're with anybody. Um, and so the indigenous, you know, or, and the setting, the set is the mindset. What you bring to the experience at that moment, consciously and subconsciously, will be magnified power in powerful ways, which is part of what the therapy or part of the uh, tradition, in the case of the indigenous people, is. And the, 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 the religious, the religiosity, the transcendence of self, that, that can come with uh, use of the medicines. So, you know, the, 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 the I, I don't know what's gonna happen with the profit motive. I don't know that the profit motive offers us any higher consciousness than what indigenous people practice in community. So I draw the contrast, for example, between say the singing, dancing, music, and other parts of ritual that the Ohlone and other indigenous peoples of the Americas practiced that included the medicines. And it was always in community. And I looked, I also draw, my own experience has always been in community using, even in lowriders with a bunch of people, we would, you know, or there are clinics here in the mission that, that were clandestinely providing uh, different uh, psychoactive substances underground based on the teachings of indigenous peoples in Mexico and the Americas. Long before uh, many, most people now kind of came onto the, 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 the boat, you know? And, and I draw the contrast between these communitarian practices and the idea that I can just kind of do like I order a pizza or order Thing. I can be in my lonely little San Francisco big apartment where 10, 12 people of families used to live and I can have an app and I can have them send me my ketamine and I can have an experience. And now I'm not against technology or against um, some of the things that are happening with psychoactive and psychedelic substances right now. What I am doing is interrogating the idea that you can reduce a millennial experience of millennial cultures to an app. It just seems like bullshit to me, quite frankly, and scary. We are speaking with journalist Roberto Lovato, who wrote the Alta Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness, which again, you can find at altaonline.com. Follow Roberto on Twitter at Rob Vado, and find out more about Roberto at his website, robertolovato.com. And you write of the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy clinic, uh, the location of Polaris Insight Center, a few blocks away from my high school alma mater, is familiar enough. The therapist Veronica Gold is a very affable psychologist from the Czech Republic. Public, long a major center of psychedelic research. She tells me of the many challenges her clinic 
and others that want to serve the poor non-white clients face. And you quote Gold saying, a major issue is accessibility. These medicines, the treatments are so expensive that it really is not accessible for most people from working class backgrounds. And as you were mentioning, uh, Timothy Leary earlier, as we toured the office of Polaris Insight Center, the conversation with Gold, the therapist, has me pondering the most significant influences on the psychedelic experience, the setting and the set. Terms coined by Timothy Leary. Setting refers to the external environment again, the people, places, and things around us when we experience the medicines. Set refers to our mindset, the things affecting our internal state, including our personality, our mood, our expectations, and especially the preparation we do to maximize the experience. So what is the impact on a psychedelic experience when the setting is a place like the Polaris Insight Center? How does that affect your experience? Before anything, I want to say the Polaris, the folks at Polaris Insight are really, I've seen two different approaches to ketamine clinics, for example, because ketamine is the one, the primary uh, psychedelic psychoactive substance of the ones I'm talking about that is legal right now to use. And, um, you know, we're going to see some laws in California that will make others, that will, you know, make changes to other substances. Uh, federal government's another level. So, you know, the folks at Polaris are, there's two different kinds of people in psychedelics right now and in these ketamine clinics. There's the people like Polaris that are thoughtful, caring, and, and, and really trying to break their backs, go out of the way to try to give people access to these treatments that cost anywhere from $400 to $2,000 a session. Right? And sometimes you have to do multiple sessions to kind of see some res desired results. And then there's the people that are in it for the profit, the people who I've interviewed who are cutting costs and therefore cutting the things that affect your set and your settings. So that, for example, if I want to go, you know, you know, they recommend many hours of preliminary meetings to prepare you for the journey, which Indigenous, this is based on indigenous knowledge and on knowledge in the case of Polaris gained from research in of all places, Czechoslovakia, which was one of the centers of psychedelic research when it was a communist country. Uh, I mean, one of the groundbreaking people in the application of psychedelics to psychotherapy was a guy named Stanislav Grof. Stan Grof, who uh, was a friend of one of my mentors and um, is a friend of one of my mentors because they're both alive actually. So. Um, you know, the, the folks at Polaris bring a deep history in Western Czechoslovakian and other uh, looks at things. But, you know, I, they were, their offices are down up the street from Mission High School, a place where, you know, I had to admit in my story and I'm doing it here actually live for the first time. I used to rob people. I was a working class kid and I used to rob and beat up people uh, along with my friends. And, you know, the people were living in these uh, Victoria, these gorgeous Victorian apartments that uh, our you know, families used to live in. And so there was a bit of kind of economic raisonnement, if you, if you will, or you know, combined with economic need. And so I, you know, I, how am I gonna deal with going into one of these old apartments with my mindset being cluttered with these memories of robbing these white people, right? So, you know, it was, it's just one of many examples of the ways that uh, working class, non-white people are going to have to deal, would have a hard time dealing as a therapist, like another one in my article, Daniela Herrera, uh, an indigenous Filipina and Chicana who, from LA who, who's here in the Bay Area and is telling me about the ways that um, 
traditional Western approaches and, and, and putting people in these white rooms is maybe not the place where people that have more family issues um, about drugs, who have a drug war that has been just plunked upon their existence, right? Because, I mean, people here in San Francisco who talk about race and this digital Darwinism that we see don't seem to remember that the reason that uh, Facebook and Twitter have two to three percent uh, black and Latinx employees on average or something like near that is, is not because of um, genetic inferiority to whites and Asians who dominated, but because these communities have had a historic prison industrial complex built around the their children's grades and their children's futures. So, you know, uh, needless to say, the drug war affected working class and non-white peoples in, uh, in, in, in disproportionate ways. And we're still dealing with the legacy of that. And of I would even argue the drug war launched by Junipero Serra and the Inquisition during the Renaissance. And so the psychedelic Renaissance, which I don't know why Poland and these other people are calling it a, using that terminology, doesn't seem to hold history into account when it starts developing these allegedly innovative new models for treatment. What happens to our understanding of the so-called success of Silicon Valley when we do not consider the inequality that it has imposed not only within the tech sector in Silicon Valley, but upon all the people of San Francisco Bay Area? Um, could you repeat that, please? Sure. What happens to our what happens to our understanding of Silicon Valley when we think of the success of Silicon Valley? What happens to that idea of success of Silicon Valley when we ignore the inequality that it also imposes? How does that well, go ahead? Yeah, it's kind of like the way I see accounting. Right, we have to change our ideas of accounting because our traditional ideas of accounting don't take into account <laughs> the devastation that has now brought the planet to the brink of destruction. Right. Capitalism, not Soviet Union, destroyed the climate in ways that have, you know, mass destroyed entire species, thousands of them, and is threatening life on Earth as we know it, as Tonga will tell you last week, right? So, um, and uh, you know, as, so, so in the same way that we have to change our ideas of account, we have to change our ideas of success, quote unquote, because the success of Silicon Valley has killed, displaced, destroyed, poisoned poor and non-white communities throughout the Bay Areas. You're not gonna have, you don't have a black community to speak of really except in Hunter's Point, and that's really shrinking fast in San Francisco. You're not gonna have a Latinx community in the near foreseeable future in the Bay Area, except in the symbolic, beautiful murals, right? My neighborhood of origin, the mission is home to the largest concentration of murals in the world. Another one of those reflections of the magical power of community that we built back in the day, but that's now just gonna be the only remnant, like some ruin in an archeological site of Latinx indigenous people in this part of the United States, except for small pockets which is where people are off already being pushed into because you know your average rents are twenty nine hundred to three thousand dollars and up for an apartment or one point four million to buy a house. These are like double anything in most of the country. So um, you know the, the the success of Silicon Valley has 
just like the um, Renaissance, just like, yeah, the Renaissance and the, the underbelly of the Renaissance being the Inquisition, um, you know, are going, our are, 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 are success means that people will be killed, displaced, poisoned, traumatized. Like I, I take readers in, into, a, not directly into, but I speak to the head of a, a community clinic, a friend of mine, Felix, uh, Felix Curry, Palestinian Salvadoran revolutionary psychologist who was telling me about um, the ways that these folks that are living five, 10 people in an apartment are dealing with domestic violence, with, with trauma from war left over 10, 20 years ago, with or 30 years ago, or dealing with um, the challenge, but the biggest challenge they're facing is the psychological disruption and, and constant disruption that is uh, gentrification, you know, the pressure from landlords to push them out. So um, that's the success of Silicon Valley. I mean, I've, I've talked to kids and gone to classrooms here in the mission where, um, you know, kids will be writing poetry and their poetry has these images of these superhero robots fighting against landlords. <laughs> these are the, these are the cartoons and the the images and the poetry and in the and in the graphic comics that some of the teachers have them create that are in the in the subconscious of these children. And this is the the future that we that we're we're hailing. Where you know, I mean, and, and Silicon Valley is driving not just in San Francisco or California, but throughout the world, the concentration of wealth at exponential levels, unprecedented in the history of the world. So they need to dismantle Facebook. And they need to really send a message. We need to. I mean, I've advocate. I mean, believe it or not, I'm an advocate of the death penalty for some citizens, corporate citizens. If you want to put people to 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 death, which I oppose, why don't you take the citizen that you say the corporation is and put it to death and dismantle it for its crimes against humanity? I think Facebook qualifies. I think uh, other companies could very well. Uh, do that because they're doing it in the physical world, and I think that unless we we become aware, they're going. We're, we're going to see this in the realm of consciousness. And you know, I've survived a, and I, I fought in a, a in a war against the fascist military dictatorship. So I I know firsthand what it is to look at the abyss that you were talking about, staring at the abyss in the way you and Nietzsche talk about, right? Because it, the need, and so to look at the abyss that I cover in my book, which is the abyss of war, trauma, and the abyss of gentrification that I saw in the mission, I had the great fortune to have a, a therapist who was a psychologist. I mean, I had the first good fortune to grow up in the mission and to be exposed to the medicines in my late teens and been using them you know, throughout the last 40 years. But at this latter stage, when I was getting ready to look at all of the abysses of that I've looked at in my life as a former guerrilla fighter, as a journalist that's traveled throughout the world looking at terrorism, narco violence, and other things. I had the good fortune to find a therapist that um, provided me the most powerful medicines to, for me to face those different abysses that I had had, I, had experienced. And he was uh, you know, clandestinely providing me for about two and a half years uh, microdosing and macrodosing of LSD. And my book, Unforgetting, uh, is as much a product of the use of the medicines as it is a product of, you know, my writing, my journalism, and my experience. 
So uh, I, 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 I know firsthand uh, the power of these medicines to treat and to empower us to look at things in a different way, to look at ourselves, to overcome ourselves. And I, 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 I decided, you know, screw it. I'm going to come out about this hidden part of my life in that underworld, right? I was part, in my book, I came out for the first time as a former guerrilla. And now I decided, well, I'm going to tell the back end story of the book, which is the psychedelic underground. And that's what motivated me to write the story. You write that finding out that more than a few techies joined Silicon Valley investor and prominent Trump supporter Peter Thiel in seeing psychoactive psychoactive substances as the next disruptive technology reminds me that these are the same techies who, before COVID-19, came to the mission and drank craft beer at the bar Amnesia, watched movies at the Alamo Draft House, and lived in multi-million dollar condos with names like Vida, Spanish for life. So, in your opinion, what happens to psychedelics when they are viewed as a disruptive technology and not seen as a healing medicine. I think the profit motive takes over where the human motive uh, should, should, should be centered, right? In other words, the, 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 the conscious, the real consciousness of that includes the, the, the consciousness of the heart, the consciousness, not just of the mind. Silicon Valley is a mind-driven enterprise. It's not a heart-driven enterprise. That's clear and undeniable in the physical realm of San Francisco and in the mission where my community has been largely displaced and destroyed. And then they have a narrative that we're, there's a, there's a subconscious narrative among whites and non-whites in Silicon Valley that Latinos and black people are genetically inferior. Okay, I, 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 I hear and I smell it in the streets of the mission in La Boheme where some techies go sometimes. I hear it in in the BART station. I hear it on the streets. It's basically an assumption, hey man, my people did it, so should you. Okay, well, your people didn't have to live with a goddamn drug war and US imperialism stuffed down your throats like we did. We had a very particular way that it happened to us. So, um, you know, the, 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 the Silicon Valley, um, Techies and and the, and the, and their their leaders are, are 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 not in the don't seem to be in the business of caring about um, what happens to folks in the field. If, if why why should we assume that the the the, the displacement, destruction, and um, devastation of say my community in the mission or the Fillmore or other parts of the entire Bay Area that are being dismantled by Silicon Valley greed and profits. Why should we believe that what happened in the physical realm is not, I mean, so I, I, I mentioned amnesia because it just seems so bitingly ironic that they're going to bars called amnesia. That bar is gone because of COVID, but you know they used to go there or you know they, they've changed the, the, the new mission theater that I grew up going to see James Bond and Bruce Lee movies and, 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 and other movies, they've changed the name of the new mission into the Alamo Draft House, where you can have craft beer, you know, for $20 or 30, and then you pay another 20 to $50 to see the movie when we used to go for, to see the movies there for like $2 or less. So why should we believe that what, what, what they led us to in the physical realm is not going to happen in the realm of consciousness. So as 
I wrote this as kind of just sound an alarm. Hey, look, you can believe this talk of the psychedelic renaissance, but look historically at the word renaissance itself. Look at the Inquisition. Look at the destruction of native peoples. Look at the way that those who are leading the psychedelic renaissance, for example, and I mentioned this in my article, they could give a flying rolling donut about the death, destruction, and dismantling of the lives of the indigenous peoples of the of the global south, especially in the, the in this hemisphere where you know all these ayahuasca communities, the music, the, the, the communities in Mexico that brought us mushrooms, peyote, mescaline, these communities are under attack, like my friends in uh, who are the Wixarica peoples in northern Mexico right now. They're facing big agribusiness. They're facing um, um, mining interests. They're facing a corrupt and violent Mexican government. They're facing narcos, and they're facing one of their greatest challenges in psychedelic tourism. So the people, even nonprofits that are promoting, you know, this kind of liberal view of psychedelics are not doing absolutely anything about the condition of the people who brought us this in the global south and in, in the Americas. And so, you know, one of you know, my sources in the in the psychedelic community and the medicine community are, you know, came brought me this term that I didn't know, which was terms like spiritual extractivism, right? Where they're doing what they do in mining in the physical world to the world of culture. Where you mine a culture, you take what's valuable from it and you leave the land destroyed or, you know, un un unlivable. They're gonna do similar things and they're doing similar things in culture when Compass, for example, a company, one of the biggest players is patenting, you know, uh, you know, plant medicines that are millennial and that are protected by my friends, the Wixaricas, who are now being killed off, as happened just a few couple of weeks ago, where six people were killed. And these people are the people that that are the, you know, there's a film about the, they are the protectors of the medicine, of, of some of the medicines. And so, um, you know, I, I was on a caravan of, uh, uh, that came from Mexico to the United States with, the survivors of the US sponsored drug war that began with in 2006 with Bush and was expanded by Obama and continued by Trump in Mexico and continued now by Biden. Uh, you know, they, 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 I was with, uh, included in the, in the victims of that, uh, of the, who were about 100 on these buses going from 24 US cities were, were some of the Wixarica peoples. Uh, and, you know, they, I befriended some of them. They were telling me about. And now they're telling me about how they're under attack and how they go to conferences with uh, US-based nonprofit leaders in the psychedelic and realm and in the for-profit realm. And they're even laughed at, okay, indigenous people at these conferences because of their demands to be treated equally and to be treated with respect. So, um, you know, I, I challenge, you know, any of these uh, nonprofit think tanks whether it's at Berkeley or Johns Hopkins, or whether it's a for-profit business or it's a nonprofit, you know, in the United States that claims to be, you know, wanting to do the right thing to to make a connection to the peoples that brought us this in the first place, and to to, to actually speak out about it instead of adopting what one source of mine called um, 
uh, what was it? Spiritual, gosh, man, I'm, I'm uh, well, you know, it's, 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 it's extractivism and it's spiritual, uh, bear with me one sec. Uh, not spiritual, spiritual bypassing, right? Spiritual bypassing where basically, you know, hey, I'm really into your ayahuasca. I'm really into your peyote, but I could give a flying rolling donut about the fact that your people are being slaughtered, that you're the challenges you face, or I could care less about, you know, I love, you know, the murals of the mission. I love the Mexican food. Hey, but you know, the fact that all these traumatized migrants or these people that have been here for decades are being pushed out by me and my techie friends. Who cares? I'm really having a good trip. Well, so, let me let me ask you about that real quick, because I, I'm just why do you think it is that that spiritual bypass or psychedelic tourism or spiritual extractivism? Why do you think those who are practicing those processes, which they may not have intended to, which they may not recognize. Why do they not recognize those as processes of colonialism? What explains to you their unwillingness or inability to notice that those are processes of colonialism? Well, I think you've answered the question in your question. Uh, People don't have a high uh, assimilation and education rate with respect to matters colonial. People are not taught. I mean, we're at a time where kind of neo-fascists are even bringing us to a point where they want to institute a fascist cult of amnesia with respect to critical race theory in the history of the United States. Very dangerous coming from, you know, I'm telling you this as someone that literally fought a fascist military dictatorship. Fascism needs the erasure of memory. That's why I called my book Unforgetting. And I wrote my book as a way to, again, sound another alarm about, hey, This is coming to your country soon. And I also included in there the way to fight it, right? Which was what I, with not just guerrilla warfare, but with uh, guerrilla warfare and culture. We need to hack the hackers. We need to, you know, um, hack the culture to get messages. I mean, we need stuff like what you're doing on this show, in fact. And I don't mean that to kiss anybody's behind it. I really do mean that. I think what you all, what we all do in in media, at this moment is critical. What, what folks are doing in education is urgent. And so, you know, yeah, people are deep, people default to white supremacy in a white supremacist culture. So why would it surprise us when, when people start taking, you know, and, and, and white supremacy, people's understanding about white supremacy doesn't, doesn't include things like forgetting or things like colonialism or liberalism, like liberalism has a, you know, I mean, San Francisco, the mission district is a a ruin or a monument to the liberal work, the workings of the liberal imagination and the liberal economy, neoliberal economy in Silicon applied to communities. And, you know, I mean, do, 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 do my friends and relatives who are destroyed whose livelihoods were destroyed in the mission, care whether their livelihoods were destroyed by a a, a liberal talking uh, uh, techie like Mark Zuckerberg, or whether it's a neo-fascist like Peter Thiel. It don't matter. The fact is you dropped a grenade in the core of our consciousness and now we're, um, we're living the consequences. So whether you drop 
the grenade unconsciously in a liberal way or consciously in a neo-fascist way or consciously as a liberal because liberals do do things out of greed and 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 and, and uh venality too we have been speaking with journalist Robert Lo- Roberto Lovato, who wrote the Alta Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness. Roberto, I've got one last question for you. You can follow Roberto on Twitter at Rob Vado. You can find out more about Roberto at his website, RobertoLovato.com. Again, he is the author of Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas, which was listed as a must-read 2020 book by Newsweek, and the LA Times listed it as one of its 20 best books of 2020. One last question for you, Roberto. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, Uh-oh. you may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You uh, quote somebody, and now I'm missing her name, uh, last name of Labat, uh, Dr. Labat, uh, telling you a utilitarian approach where we want to get knowledge from indigenous people and sometimes imitate their practices and pick and choose things that we like, but we don't engage in any kind of indigenous rights, such as land rights or health or conservation or all kinds of other things. We can celebrate indigenous plants, but indigenous people continue to be murdered throughout the Americas. As someone who is Indio, when you are using mushrooms, how difficult is it to not remember the murder of not only indigenous people, but indigenous culture, including the criminalization of healing medicines like psilocybin, how difficult is it for you to not see the past when you are tripping in the present? It's as difficult as the giant meteor of capitalism is on the planet and has been hitting it for so long, like like the ones that destroyed the dinosaurs. I think it's extremely difficult to look at trauma. I mean, uh, I had to have the help of the medicines. I had to have community ceremonies. I went to TP ceremonies with indigenous peoples. I worked with therapists and uh, I had to look at the most difficult things there are to look at in my life. We have to do with war, displacement, domestic violence, and you know, that was rained on me and, and, and uh, psychological violence and it's uh, it's as difficult a thing as there is. It's like trying to kind of come to grips with the death of your mom, those of you that lost a parent. It's really, really hard. But this is where the, the that work is made less difficult by the medicines because if you have the right set, the right mindset, you prepare yourself. If you have the right setting, if you surround yourself with the right people, go to the right place and not just go to have a fun trip, which is good and dandy. I advocate the recreational use as well, but with, I've been talking mainly about the, the healing use of the medicines, the ritual use of the medicines. Uh, to, 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 to kind of put your mind, your, your mindset and your, your, your environmental set in place and then sit with whatever the medicines bring you with and having prepared yourself to look at your own private hell, your own private abyss, is among the most important things we can do right now, especially those of us that are political, those of us that are concerned about the rise of neo-fascism and the capitalist order that will sustain it regardless, right? Because capitalism doesn't care who's in power as long as the profits continue. 
Trump is the expression of capitalism's willingness to flirt with fascism. So, um, you know, if we're concerned about, we have to do the work to look at these things because you talked earlier about the way that colonialism is normalized. We need to unnormalize. We need to decolonialize. And so there is a movement within psychedelics to decolonize psychedelics. People like Daniel Herrera and, and, and uh, uh, some other folks like Bia Labate and others, they'll talk, talk to you about the decolonization as will the indigenous peoples. So I actually end the story with great hope. And I wanna end the interview with great hope because regardless of how much there's been a goddamn inquisition has been, you know, a, 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 a renaissance, a psychedelic renaissance that's not inclusive. As much as there's big capital coming in, as much as they've displaced, destroyed people's lives, like in the mission, there is still a thriving underground that includes a psychedelic underground. And I, having been a former underground, in a former underground uh, in El Salvador during the war, I can tell you that you know that's that's going to be the place. Those are going to be the places where we're going to have to uh, kind of keep the embers of, of of hope warm and 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 hot, so that we can face what's coming. And so, one of our yeah, I don't want to say weapons, but one of our instruments that we can use in the fight um, against neo-fascism and again and, and 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 within ourselves, because I know a lot of people listening everywhere. They're like. They're struggling like a lot of us are, and and, and they're, they're, they 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 have a friend in the medicines if used in the right way, in the way that you put your mind and your your mindset and your 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 environment, your setting in place. So really, I, I wrote the piece ultimately because I also wanted to share the hope and the power that I've that I've had the experience to be uh, a part of in the mission and beyond. So just just one one more question though for you Roberto just to follow up because I have experienced psychedelics hundreds of times in my life and in fact my first time that I ever did experience them was only a few months after your very first experience and it was with the exact same drug mescaline so uh, but I've been very concerned during the pandemic I have had offered to me which is fantastic I've had much better access to psychedelics but I've been very afraid to take psychedelics during a pandemic. And even the people who have been offering me psychedelics have had the exact same concern. So when it comes to the trauma of the pandemic, should I be trying to find the healing power within psychedelics? Or am I just going to have a really bad trip because I'm too consumed with the pandemic that lurks outside? Well, I think that's, uh, I can't answer that for you. I think that's between you and your, your gods. <laughs> Um, my gods include the gods of the underworld. So like I joined William Blake and believing in the inversion of values that's inherent in his, uh, the marriage of heaven and hell, you know? And so I, you know, you know, look at Daniel Defoe's uh, year in the pandemic book, right? I mean, there's in that period they were using psychedelics in Europe. We've been in crisis forever. I mean, if you read Walter Benjamin, the great German philosopher, we've always been in crisis. And crisis is like this, the, this, the, the angel of history and is dragging us along on this ongoing crisis that keeps kind of growing in some ways and just keeps consistent. And so having lived through what scholars of theology and scholars of violence call the apocalyptic violence of El Salvador, I, 
I cannot but think that, you know, in the face of the epidemic, in the face of war, in the face of near death, as many are experiencing right now, we have a great ally in the, in the struggle for dignity, for awareness, for humanity in these medicines that have proven time and again their power. I mean, if you look at graphs, for example, where the axis is, one axis is the axis of potential for death and the other is the axis for potential addiction. If you look at the upper right hand of that graph, which is the most dangerous side, do you know what is the most dangerous of substances on that graph? I would assume alcohol. Correcto. And you know, the lower left, lower left part of that graph is the safest part. You know what's the safest? I'm going to I'm going to guess natural uh, uh, psychedelics. Plant-based psychedelics and psychedelics generally. They're not addictive by and large. So um, that's contrary to the image of psychedelics that began when they started, you know, uh, illegalizing LSD and other substances thereafter. And, you know, I think uh, I really, the political part of me really believes that the state has an investment in controlling our consciousness. You know, there's been ideological analyses, but I think we're going to have to start figuring out what is the state up to in its dalliance with psychedelics? What sort of a control program and agenda? We know that the CIA had like M. Cultura program and other programs, including places where like here in San Francisco, they would go to bars, pick people up, fill them with psychedelics and, and experiment with them like Pavlovian dogs. So, um, you know, I'm not one to believe that uh, there aren't forces behind the liberal face of uh, the psychedelic renaissance that are in cahoots with the state to try to control our consciousness in ways that include, oddly enough, this. So remember, these substances are neutral. They're neither, I mean, there were Nazis experiencing, experimenting with psychedelics. There's a version of the New Age movement in Germany that included, you know, that led to Nazism. They were experimenting with, experimenting with psychedelics. The hippies, took, you know, by and large, took the, the more peacenik route to psychedelics, but psychedelics themselves are neither pro-peace or pro-war. They can be used for, for, for war and for peace. It all depends on, on who's, how we approach them and what the powers that be are trying to influence. So we need to be mindful. <laughs> we need to be mindful of our minds right now because there's a, there's a movement afoot, not just with electronic technology, but the the, one of the, I asked one of my sources about one of the big fears about uh, the psychedelic quote-unquote renaissance, and he told me that, he's a lawyer, um, and he told me that, and he works on these issues, and he told me that one of his big fears is the combination of the legalization of psychedelics with the kind of algorithms that companies like Facebook have where they're going to start targeting people with psychedelic ads. Just imagine that. People that may not need or may not be in a good position to be using these powerful medicines are going to start getting targeted with these powerful ads, just like everything else you get on, on social media. So that's kind of the downside. I'd rather look at the upside where, you know, I have a, I think I've tried to live a life committed to emancipation. I joined the revolutionary movement and I think there's a potential for these medicines for emancipatory work with the self and in community.
And you know, sometimes the emancipatory work can include returning to the sacred ways or trying to come close to the sacred ways of those who led us to these places of altered states in the first place, the indigenous people. So yeah, I think that's the best way to kind of end on a positive note. Roberto, thank you so much for being on our show. Again, Roberto Lovato wrote the Alta Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness. Check out his book, Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. Again, thank you so much for being on our show, Roberto, and enjoy the rest of your week. You too. My pleasure. Thank you. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. And if that conversation with Roberto on the gentrification of consciousness and psychedelics was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from Helen. Tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hell is what have you been putting off? What have you been putting off? And on Facebook, No Wack Wolf <laughs> responds, The Crosshatch. The Crosshatch ruined my life. <laughs> I do not know what that means, but. I don't know either that. <laughs> Tyler R says he has been putting up. Giving up. <laughs> All right. Uh, Wojciech R says, death. Um, <laughs> That's a nice thing to put off. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Max I says, bad vibes. A lot of hope here by go. the feeling of it. Oh, do better on that. <laughs> uh, and Neil C finally says, he has been putting off building back better. We got an email from Paolo at this at Chuck at thisishell.com who writes, Dear Chuck and Hell friends, I hope you're well. I'm going to be shameless and do some self-promotion as I've been tirelessly working on this for almost two weeks. There was chaos in Kazakhstan. Hundreds were killed and thousands were arrested. But it all started with the protest about inequality and injustice. And now it's over thanks to brutal repression and continuous pressure against journalists, my colleagues and friends there. I've written a few pieces, fuel protests spill over into political demands across Kazakhstan, and our activism won't stop. The Oyan movement recounts the January protests in Kazakhstan, both at Global Voices, as well as the Open Democracy articles, Anger, Injustice, and Politics brought people to the streets in Kazakhstan and reporting on Kazakhstan's chaos amid internet shutdowns and violence, and edited some more at Open Democracy, one of the few outlets in the West that has followed the events with genuine interest and not the usual conspiratorial, simplistic coverage. If you'd like to discuss the topic, I'm available. I normally live in Almaty, the city where the clashes happened in uh, Kazakhstan, but this crisis erupted while I was visiting family in Italy. With reporting from the ground respond or impossible for five days, the authorities cut communication. I was among the few who was able to reach some of the people there, and now I fear that with international coverage waning, pressure on journalists and activists will continue even more harshly. Sorry for the long email. In solidarity, solidarity, Paolo Sorbello, or maybe Sorbello. And with that, Sebastian, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Uh, coming up as the next guest on This Is Hell tomorrow would be Paolo Sorbello. <laughs> Look at that. 
um, talking about uh, his article on uh, open democracy, reporting on Kazakhstan's chaos amid internet shutdowns and violence. Uh, and since he's Italian, I think you would pronounce him Sorbello. I think so too, yeah, not Sorbello, that would be Spanish. And during a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, Jeff will tangle with all pervasive networks. Finally, there was something that was worth mentioning but did not come up during our conversation with uh, sociologist Amy Cooter earlier this week when discussing her Scientific American article on the militia movement in the U.S. becoming more violent. On President Trump losing the November election and Joe Biden becoming president, Amy writes that when Biden was elected, quote, in contrast to what many militia members had predicted, they did not see President Biden enact martial law or start an immediate attack on Second Amendment rights. And those are not the only conspiracy theories, by the way, that did not come true for those who may be a member or have sympathies for the militia movement. For instance, Trump did not retain his office as predicted, as QAnon conspiracy theories were claiming he would. Other conspiracy theories that have been proven false include President Trump outing an international pedophilia ring and arresting those involved with some of them being executed, all of which was supposed to happen while Trump was still in office. Hillary Clinton was not arrested for playing a role in the pedophilia cabal, as had been predicted. Joe Biden and members of the deep state were not rounded up and again executed, as conspiracy theorists claimed, for supposedly stealing the election. Audits of elections, especially the one in Arizona, did not prove Trump really won. There is no evidence that widespread voter fraud took place, as many predicted would come to light. JFK Jr. did not return at the site of his father's assassination and announced he would be Trump's running mate in the 2024 presidential calendar. We have not returned to using the Julian calendar. Don't even know why that was a conspiracy theory. Then there was Pizzagate about children being locked up in a pizza shop's basement, a pizza shop that did not actually have a basement, much like the Alamo. So with so many conspiracy theories proving to be wrong, why are there still so many who continue to buy into such theories? Why, an exasperated liberal may think, why are these clearly wrong conspiracy theorists not being held accountable and responsible for their really bad predictions? Well, ask yourself this. Why weren't all the pundits and analysts fired who said Saddam Hussein was on the verge of having not nuclear weapons, so he must invade and occupy Iraq? Why were they not held accountable and no longer given a platform in the establishment media like they still continue to hold? What about the analysts who have been telling us for this entire century that Iran is only a few years away from having a nuclear weapon? And you can actually go back into the last century and see those reports. And how about all those cheerleaders for the housing market who up to only a day or two prior to the financial collapse of 2008 and the bursting of the housing bubble, who were saying on national television that the real estate market would keep going up, up, up. Why weren't they held responsible for their inaccurate analysis? The establishment corporate mainstream media has set the bar for accountability, and that bar apparently does not exist. So why expect those who believe in conspiracy theories to not accept the next wacky theory simply because the past theories have all been proven wrong? Establishment media does not hold their alleged experts responsible, replacing them with analysts who were saying the war on Iraq was unnecessary and that we were lied into it. What about the analysts who have exaggerated Iran's nuclear program time and time again? Corporate media is not firing the so-called experts who saw an endless increase in real estate prices, so of course conspiracy theorists who are totally off base are not 
held responsible by their believer, believers either, or those who now give annual reports that Russia is about to invade Ukraine, reports that you can actually find dating back to 2015. Until we have journalism that holds itself accountable, instead of trotting out the same pundits whose theories have proven to be wrong time and time again, don't expect conspiracy theorists to ever hold their experts accountable either. You want to get rid of fake news? Then get rid of fake journalistic standards as well. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast and live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Sebastian Vupper and in a cameo role, Alexander Jerry. We're not joking. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>